One other really neat resource is um, this couple, Fred and Susie Dow, have spent the better part of the last three decades traveling to every national forest campground in their RV and writing up a review of that campground. And they have all of that on forestcamping.com. And so between the Forest Service sites and forestcamping.com, you're going to be able to find very specific information on every campground in the national forest system. And I think there's more than 5,000 of them. So no small effort on behalf of Fred and Susie Dow uh, at forestcamping.com. Awesome, awesome tip. Let's let's keep going here. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Jeremy. Authors of Where Should We Camp Next, a 50-state guide to amazing campgrounds and other unique outdoor accommodations. Almost 12 years ago, we bought a pop-up camper that changed our lives and introduced us to the joys of RV travel. Join us now as we talk about where to camp, what gear to bring, and the best food to cook. We will also keep you dialed in to the latest RV innovations from people in the know. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. Today, we have back on the show for the second time in a row, Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. In the last episode, he gave us some great tips for camping responsibly on public lands. It's an episode that all of you need to listen to if you plan on boondocking on public lands and and you want to do it the right way and you want to be a good citizen. Today, he's coming back on the show to educate us about the 10 regions of the National Forest Service and to give us his top recommendation from each of those regions so we can all start building a national forest's bucket list. Because I think that a lot of us have our national parks bucket list, and we often overlook our beautiful and amazing national forests. So without further ado, I want to get right to the content today because Greg has all kinds of great information for us about these different regions of the National Forest Service. But before we dive in, we have sponsored messages from our friends at Blackstone and from our friends at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts. The sound of bacon or burgers and steaks sizzling is the sound that you crave this summer. Blackstone is the original flat-top griddle with more than 5 million griddles sold. Blackstone is the way that America cooks in the great outdoors. You can cook everything you can on a traditional grill and a thousand things you can't. Do you want an incredible breakfast? How about lunch or dinner? The solid steel flat top infuses the flavors. Pick the size and style that's right for your next camping trip. The 17-inch and 22-inch griddles are easy to store in your RV and still have the space to feed the hungriest army. They even have 17 and 22-inch griddles with side burners for greater outdoor cooking versatility. With Blackstone, you can cook anything, anytime, anywhere. For fun and flavor that you can't find anywhere else, Else, go wherever griddles are sold or head on over to blackstoneproducts.com because it's better on a blackstone. 
Whether you enjoy the comfort of a luxury cabin, a deluxe RV site, or prefer to try some unique options like yurts, treehouses, or covered wagons, award-winning Jellystone Parks has a variety of first-rate accommodations, attractions, and activities to provide the setting for an affordable and fun family vacation. Our family has been making great camping memories at Jellystone Park for years, and we can't wait to get back and see Yogi Bear and friends this spring and summer. Jellystone Park locations have everything you and your family will need to make long-lasting camping memories. From amazing water zones, including pools, splash grounds, and splash pads, to mini golf, wagon rides, and jumping pillows, Jellystone Park is the best place for family entertainment this year. You will also find many themed weekend events, including appearances from Yogi Bear and Friends. You will notice that family fun at our exciting camp resorts is the main attraction. With over 75 locations across the United States and Canada, make Jellystone Park part of your vacation this spring and summer. Remember, it's not just a campground, it's Jellystone Park. To find out more and book your spring and summer getaways, head on over to jellystonepark.com. Hello, Greg Peters, and welcome back to the RV Atlas. Thank you so much for coming back for a second appearance. How are you today? I'm great, Jeremy. Thanks for having me again. This has been a lot of fun. I feel like a student who's going to class right now and should be should be taking notes. I'm really excited to learn from you and to learn more about the national forests today. So our, our national forests are are really vast. Um, and we're going to dive into the different regions and, and a recommendation um, of one of your favorites from each region. But can you just give us a broad overview first to give us a sense of just how huge and magnificent they are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So the National Forest System um, is managed by the U.S. Forest Service, um, and that is an agency under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is a little bit different. Most other federal lands, uh, so national parks, Bureau of Land Management lands, um, Fish and Wildlife Service lands, so refuges, wildlife refuges, things like that, those are all managed by agencies that are under the Department of Interior. So the the National Forest System and the Forest Service is a little bit different, um, and that's a legacy of the way that the Forest Service was created um, in the early 1900s in 1905 um, it, it, by Teddy Roosevelt uh, and Gifford Pinchot um, back then. And so um, there's been talk over the years of transitioning it to Department of Interior, but that's never happened. So um, I do think that's kind of an important thing to bring up. I think it, it highlights um, – how these lands are, are really used for, for so many different reasons and so many different resources, including timber. Um, if we think of timber as kind of a crop, um, it makes a, a little more sense that, that originally, at least, the National Forest System and the U.S. Forest Service were, uh, were housed under the Department of uh, Agriculture. And it's, it's a huge amount of land. It's, it's almost breathtaking to look at some of the statistics for how much land this covers. Yeah, it's it's 193 million acres, um, which is absolutely massive. Um, the national park uh, system is about 85 million acres or so. So you're, you've already got sort of more than twice the landscape that you do in the national park system. Um, and it's just, I mean, it, it encompasses, I think, 53 states, I think all but, uh, or maybe 52 states. I think there's eight states or so that don't have um, a unit, which is what sort of a, each, you know, 
know, national forest is called. It's called a unit. Um, and so it really stretches from, you know, Maine to Alaska, from Florida to California. Um, and it just encompasses so many different, um, you know, ecosystems and, and topographies and, 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 you know, geographic areas. It's just so diverse and, and really pretty fascinating. Was most of the land uh, designated in the time of like a Theodore Roosevelt, or are they still are, are are lands still becoming National Forest Service lands, or is that sort of a thing of the past as the country's developed and become? So yeah, that's populated? a great question. Um, for the most part, um, the 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 existing national forests were established back in the early 1900s. Um, in 1911, a really important piece of legislation called the Weeks Act was passed by Congress, and that allowed the federal government to purchase lands uh, from willing private sellers, um, largely to protect watersheds and and navigable rivers that uh, that flow down from these high elevation watersheds. And so that actually is where all of the east Eastern National Forests came from, or almost all of the Eastern National Forests. They, they pretty much all came after the Weeks Act in 1911, up through really the 1960s when the Forest Service and the federal government purchased large tracts of land from those willing uh, sellers back east and turned those into national forests. Now, I'm going to be a good student here and point out that this was a, a related to the flooding of Pittsburgh, right? As I learned in your book. Yeah, partially. Yeah. So what what happens is when you when you clear cut uh, high elevation forested watersheds, the water that that falls as rain or as snow in the winter time, it doesn't really percolate into the soil anymore because there's no trees. It just rushes into the streams and then floods uh, downstream. And so, yeah, in 1907 there was I think it was 1907 there was a big flood in Pittsburgh that was blamed on upper high elevation deforestation. And so the the federal government. Um, in part to protect navigable waterways and navigation for commerce through the Interstate Commerce Clause, um, figured out a way uh, to, uh, to to write some legislation that allowed that allowed the government to buy that land and reforest it. And so it's really kind of a cool story, actually, of um, reforestation of, of restoration. And now, when you walk through these forests in you know Vermont or or, or North Carolina or, or Virginia and West Virginia, you know you'd really have no idea the kind of devastation that happened there. You know, essentially and a half ago because they look like really pretty healthy, you know, forests with, with big old trees. So it's pretty cool to see, um, one, that kind of story, and then also to have the legacy of these public lands on the east, in the east as well as the west. And it's this link uh, between the national forest land in the east and commerce and business, isn't it, to some degree? Because that was part of the reason they got this legislation passed through. And it, that, that seems to me to be connected to the whole ethos of the national forest system where it's not just all conserved, right? That's not really the point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that national forests do, and this was written into the very original language that uh, Congress passed way back in the day to to sort of dictate how the different agencies ended up being the Forest Service in 1905. But there were a couple preceding agencies prior to that. And Congress passed laws telling them sort of how to manage these lands. And one of the things in those laws was um, securing favorable 
flows of water. And so water has long since the very origin of national forests has been uh, connected to national forests as one of those resources, uh, along with timber and grazing and mining and recreation that the Forest Service has to manage for. And so um, we really see that saw that come into practice, you know, with that Weeks Act in 1911 and with the protection of these upper elevation watersheds uh, and forests uh, for that, not just the navigation, but also, you know, disease comes down through these, you know, in these flood events and people were getting sick. Um, and there's a lot of commerce that happens as a result of uh, rivers. There's navigation. There were, you know, a lot of industrial mills, textile mills, cabinetry mills, things like that in the east um, that relied on water and power generation from from those rivers. So, yeah, it's it's intricately tied to, to economics and always has been. And I think American business in general, if you take the long view, uh, re- requires a healthy environment to operate in over, yeah. over the long haul. But let's not digress too much. So any <laughs> other statistics to just give our audience a sense of the the vastness of our national forests before we dive in and you teach us about the different regions and give us a recommendation from each region. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, there's 193 million acres, which is just uh, amazing. And that's split up into 155 national forests, which people think of as forests. Um, but there's also actually 20 grasslands that are part of the national forest system. Um, and a lot of folks may not recognize or realize that that there's grasslands that are part of the national forest system. It's a little counterintuitive. Um, and they're spread out mostly in the in the Midwest and, and sort of uh, intermountain zone. And they're actually legacies of uh, the Dust Bowl and another kind of really interesting story of restoration um, on behalf of the Forest Service and a couple other federal agencies. And then there's one national tall grass prairie that is outside of uh, Chicago that uh, and, and actually this is partly to sort of circle back to the question you asked earlier. It was added to the National Forest System in the 1990s. Um, it was an old munitions factory that the Department of Defense no longer needed. And so um, they ended up giving it over to the Forest Service. And they're now uh, working with, with volunteers and, and local youth groups on restoring that 20,000 acres to a tall grass prairie, which is really pretty cool and a really neat set of open space just outside, about an hour outside of Chicago. Um, And so in those 193 million acres, there's so many opportunities for recreation. And I know that's what your listeners are interested in. There's more than 14,000 different recreation sites. So everything from campgrounds to boat put-ins to uh, recreational trails and trailheads. there's more than 100, I think 150,000 miles of trails, both motorized and non-motorized. Um, some of those are in wilderness areas where you can't even ride a bike. It's just horses or foot traffic. Um, and then one other thing that I think is really kind of fun, and my wife and I do a lot of gravel biking, there's more than 370,000 miles of roads that crisscross these national forests. And so they're great for scenic driving, for ORVing, for riding bikes, mountain bikes, gravel bikes, whatever. Um, And so just, I mean, that's like, I think, 11 times the extent of the interstate highway system, just to give folks some idea of how how vast the road system is and you couple that with the trail system and I mean, you could spend a lifetime in these landscapes and never have to hike or drive the same road twice if you didn't want to. You could spend the rest of your life camping. And I mean, there are hundreds of campgrounds. What, what amazes me is that you look at like uh, Grand Teton National Park 
and there's Grand Teton National Park is very rich in campgrounds. There's like 10 or 11 or maybe 12 campgrounds. But then you look in the national forests around there. I think it's, is it Bridger Teton? Yeah, uh, there's like 20 campgrounds. Yeah. Uh, and some of them have six sites or eight sites, you know, so it's a, it's a vast, vast network of, of camping opportunities, particularly for those in, in smaller RVs, right? A lot of them don't accommodate larger RVs. So let's dive in. I want to learn about the different regions and you're going to help us sort of get, get a bucket list started of great national forests to visit. So let's, let's dive in. How many regions are there? First of all? Sure. Um, there are nine regions. Um, and it's a little, it's a little funny. There's no region seven. So there's nine regions, although it goes up to region 10, which is in Alaska. Um, but for some reason, and I don't recall the history, there's no region seven. Um, and so, yeah, the, the way the Forest Service is split up administratively, it, it, it's split into these different regions. And then each region has the different forests in it. Each forest then has different districts on it, different ranger districts. And so there is a hierarchy to how it's all organized. Um, and it can be a little intimidating when you're starting to try to figure out where to go. That's another thing that I think is important. I mentioned this um, in the in the podcast we did um, previously. You know, you're not going to find the recreation or the visitor infrastructure at these national forests that you might find at a national park, for example. So it really does take uh, some research and, and some work up front to ensure that, you know, you know where to go and, and you know what the rules and the regulations are so that you have a good time out there. There's nothing worse than, you know, getting somewhere thinking you're going to be able to do X, Y and Z and then learning that that actually isn't uh, is, isn't allowable. So it does take a little bit of, of research. But again, the opportunities are just just vast and and it doesn't take that much effort to figure out where to go and what to do. So so take um, us to region 1, the northern yeah, so, the northern region. Just give us the overview and and give us um one great spot we should think about visiting. Sure. So northern region is uh, mainly the northern Rockies. Uh, it covers um, all of Montana, uh, a little bit of northeastern Washington, uh, northern Idaho, a little bit of uh, North Dakota, South Dakota and Wyoming. Um, it has 12 national forests in it and one national grassland. Um, and it is uh, it's where it's it's basically surrounds Missoula, Montana, where I live. So I get to spend a fair bit of time uh, in this region. And it's just absolutely beautiful. I mean, think of sort of the, you know, snow capped Rocky Mountain peaks and, and prairies um, and the front range of the Rocky Mountains in, in Montana is just absolutely spectacular. And I think one of the coolest um, spots in that region is the Helena, Lewis and Clark National Forest. Um, it is a 2.8 million acre uh, swath of public land. Um, most of it is or a lot of it is on the Rocky Mountain front, um, which is just absolutely stunning scenery. You've got, you know, these sort of rolling northern plains that then just skyrocket into these reefs and snow-capped mountains of, of the Rockies. It's just absolutely just beautiful. Um, and so the Lewis and Clark at Helena National Forest covers both the, the prairies to the east and then also um, the west into the Rocky Mountains. It includes the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area, which is just a... a a stunningly beautiful wilderness area where hiking and horsepacking are, are kind of king. Um, and it's just so fun. There's uh, island mountain ranges. So in the prairies, there are 
mountain ranges that just sort of rise as islands in the prairie. And you can see all kinds of different ecosystems as you rise in elevation from, you know, the, the short grass prairie um, all the way up to, you know, forests and then up to, to alpine areas in these island mountain ranges. Um, there's a ton of Native American history. Um, there's Lewis and Clark history. Um, and some of that forest actually uh, encompasses uh, sort of the, the headwaters of the Missouri River. And uh, one spot in particular that it's really neat. It's called Gates of the Mountains. And so the Missouri River traveled through this canyon. And when Lewis and Clark got there, um, they called it the Gates of the Mountains because it really sort of ushered them into the Rocky Mountains. And these days there's a reservoir there and you can flat water paddle or take a motorboat and there's tour boats and go into this um, this canyon. And there's, you know, cliff walls that stretch, you know, close to a thousand feet on either side of a, you know, maybe a, a 50 foot or a hundred foot wide uh, ribbon of water. It's just a really neat, neat spot. I want to say something very important to our listeners right now. As as Greg goes through these regions and recommends these specific national forests to check out, go to their websites, go to the National Forest Service websites for these individual national forests and click on campgrounds and see how many campgrounds are in there. And what I've discovered is they often have a map of each campground and they tell you what length of RV can fit into each site. It's actually very granular and specific. So if you're a little intimidated by taking an RV to national for- the National Forest Service campgrounds, um, don't be just just figure out if you can if you can fit and if you can go and that information's out there. So let's go to region two. Tell sure, us tell absolutely. us about region two. And before I do, and I'll, I'll bring this up again at the end. So not only do um, do the the Forest Service websites for each forest have that that information on them. The Forest Service maintains an interactive visitor map that you can access through their main homepage or through each of these um, sub, you know, uh, individual forest pages. And that interactive visitor map, if you zoom in and scroll around, it has all the campgrounds and then it links to information for each campground. It has trailheads, it has boat launches, it has all the information that you could want about stuff to do out there. So it's a really handy resource. One other really neat resource is um, this couple, Fred and Susie Dow, have spent the better part of the last three decades traveling to every National Forest campground in their RV and writing up a review of that campground. And they have all of that on forestcamping.com. And so between the Forest Service sites and forestcamping.com, you're going to be able to find very specific information on every campground in the National Forest System. And I think there's more than 5,000 of them. So no small effort on behalf of Fred and Susie Dow uh, at forestcamping.com. Awesome. Awesome tip. Let's, let's keep going here. So yeah, sure. So Rocky mountain region, region two, Yeah, region two, Rocky mountain region. So this is, um, primarily, um, going to be covering most of Wyoming, um, Colorado, um, some of Kansas and Nebraska and South Dakota, where you're going to find some of those grasslands that I talked about. Um, in region two, there's 16 national forests and seven national grasslands. Um, and one, that I wanted to highlight. It's probably one of the most popular national forests in the country. Um, and it's, um, it's in Colorado and it is the uh, white river national forest. Um, it's about 2.3 million acres in size. So it's pretty big and it is absolutely a winter sports Mecca. I think there's more than 10 ski resorts, um, including, you know, some iconic ones like Vail and Beaver Creek and Aspen, um, and Breckenridge, 
So some of the best ski areas in the country, if you're into skiing, not so great for camping in the winter, but still you're on that national forest. You're out there enjoying it. Um, so I really think from a winter sports perspective, that's probably one of the best. Um, there are some other really stunning features. The Maroon Bells is a, a sub range of the Rocky Mountains that are absolutely beautiful. They rival any national park, you know, mountains that you're going to see. They're kind of often called um, the most photographed mountains in the in the in the country. Um, and one third of the White River um, is wilderness. Um, and so one third of it is protected from motorized travel um, or it doesn't allow motorized travel um, or even bikes. So you're you're again, you're walking or, or on a horse uh, in, in those areas. So it's just a really amazing landscape, um, you know, stunning. 14,000 foot peaks and um, beautiful high elevation valleys, nine, 10,000 feet, lush with grass and and you know deer and elk and the, the whole deal. It's a pretty cool spot. Greg, I need more time on this planet or I, I need to <laughs> come back for another life uh, just d- dedicated to exploring our national forests. Let's go somewhere a little bit warmer for region three. Sure. Yeah, and this is a great one for uh, for for snowbirds and folks that that may want to explore uh, a national forest in the in the winter time if they live in the northern part of the country. Um, region three is the southwestern region, and it covers um, primarily. Uh, Arizona and New Mexico, and there are 11 national forests um, in in Region 3 in the southwestern region. And the one I wanted to highlight is the Gila National Forest, and it's spelled G-I-L-A, but it's pronounced Gila. Um, It's in New Mexico. Um, It's got three, more than three million acres. Um, And it's really cool because actually while it's in New Mexico, it offers sort of all, you know, four seasons of recreation. In the summertime, you can get up higher into the mountains and get some of that cool mountain air and um, and it's not sweltering and in the winter um, when it's cold everywhere else you can you know stay down in the in the valleys and enjoy some warmer weather so it's it's pretty cool um, it's also um, where the first ever wilderness area was created um, and that's because one of the guys who thought about the wilderness concept named Aldo Leopold um, who wrote the San County Almanac that folks may be familiar with he was a ranger um, in the Gila back in the 1930s and he kind of uh, came up with the idea in part that um, maybe we should set some areas aside where you know people can't take machines and they can't take um, anything but a horse or, or, you know, their hiking boots. And so the first wilderness area is down there on the Gila, which I think is kind of a neat, um, little bit of history. Um, there are cliff dwellings. There's a national monument that's managed by the Forest Service called the Gila Cl- Cliff Dwellings National Monument. That's pretty cool. Um, and there's, you know, cave dwellings there, obviously. Um, there's also the Cosmic Campground, which is the first dark sky sanctuary on national forest lands. It's one of 14 internationally that is certified by the Dark Sky Organization. I forget what the exact name of that is. But um, if you like, you know, astrophotography or you want to see the Milky Way like you've never seen it before, um, the Cosmic Campground there on the Gila would be a pretty cool spot to, to spend a few nights. I love the name of that one, too. So we're going to come back in a second and we have more regions to learn about and more great national forest recommendations. We are talking to Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. It's a beautiful book that you should all grab a copy of. But before we dive into the next set of regions, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camp Spot. 
Let's face it, summers weren't meant to be experienced sitting at a desk or staring at a computer screen. It's time to call time out. CampSpot is here to help. CampSpot is an instant booking platform for camping across North America featuring over 140,000 campsites. Research and book the best campgrounds, RV parks, cabins, glamping destinations, and more to find your time out. Whether it's your next epic adventure, girls' night out, or family reunion, CampSpot lets you filter your search results results by the type of getaway you want. Browse by location, price point, site type, amenities, and more. CampSpot also offers premium inventory, real-time availability, and no membership fees so that you can find the best sites at the best campgrounds for the best prices. Picture it now. Fresh air in your lungs, cool breeze in your hair, warm hugs in your soul, and that grounded sense of self you'll only find when you spend time out. Book your spring and summer camping trips now. Find your time out. Find your CampSpot at CampSpot.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Greg M. Peters, the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And we're walking through all of the different national forest regions. Greg's giving us a, a brief overview of each and then giving us a recommendation for a national forest service uh, location to visit in that region. And the idea here is to help everybody start building a national forest bucket list because everyone has their national parks bucket list. So let's go to region four. Greg, tell us about the Intermountain region. Sure. Um, so the Intermountain region or region four um, is uh, pretty much just like it sounds. It, it covers um, most of Utah or all of Utah, um, southern Idaho, western Wyoming and uh, Nevada. And uh, there are 12 national forests uh, spread across this uh, huge region. And if folks have ever been to Nevada or, or the southern half of Idaho or western Wyoming, they're familiar with just how remote and, and rugged this landscape really is. It's, it's absolutely stunning. And I've used that word a lot, um, but uh, it, it definitely rings true uh, for all, all the times I've mentioned it, but certainly f for this one. And one of my favorite forests here um, is about five hours away from where I live in Missoula, Montana, and my wife and I have been fortunate to get down there a few times, and that's the Sawtooth National Forest. It's in Idaho. Um, and uh, it's 2.1 million acres. Um, and folks who are fans of Ernest Hemingway um, might recognize the Sawtooths from from his life. Uh, he's actually buried um, in Ketchum, Idaho, I think, uh, which is uh, kind of smack dab in the middle of, of this region. Um, it's where Sun Valley Ski Resort is. And he just had a, a lifelong love affair with the Sawtooths and, and for good reason. Um, the Salmon River flows through part of this forest. So there's incredible... Um, um, fishing and whitewater rafting. Um, one of my favorite areas in the forest is called Redfish Lake, um, which is this stunning glacial lake. Um, it's backed by these soaring uh, mountain peaks, snow-capped mountain peaks that make up the Sawtooths. Um, there's two national forest campgrounds there, both of which are really quite big. There's a lodge. Um, there's trail riding. The Salmon River's right there. There's mountain biking. Um, it's a really neat spot, and and I highly recommend folks uh, make some time to get there. Now, I don't um, want I don't want to turn this into you know a comparison to the national parks, but when I hear people talk about uh, Sawtooth National Forest. It's it's with with reverence and and almost like it's a, a comparable to a glacier or a Yellowstone in terms of the the beauty and magnificence. I mean, I think this has got to be one of the most beautiful national forests in the country. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right, <clears throat> and. 
you know, <laughs> people don't talk about these things all that often. Um, I think because in part, they kind of want to keep them uh, a little secret still and, and, and keep them a, a little protected. Um, but absolutely. I mean, I, I would, I would put the Sawtooth National Forest on par with, with Glacier or, or Yellowstone or Grand Teton. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And, uh, you're going to get a fraction of the crowds there. It's, it's about three hours from Boise. Um, so it's pretty accessible if you flew into Boise or, or, you know, drove, uh, from somewhere. Um, you know, it's remote, but it's, it's also accessible. It's just a stunning spot. I understand people wanting to, to keep something under the radar a little bit too, but also I think there's a huge value in, in, in crowds getting spread out throughout the country a little bit more instead of everybody going to Yellowstone and Yosemite and, you know, a handful of the most popular national parks. It, it might be nice if, if people were going to some of these other places because then other places would be less crowded. Yeah. Um, so how about region five? Yeah. The Pacific Southwest region, um, which is really basically California. Um, and California is, I mean, it's an amazing state. Um, 20% of California is uh, covered by national forests. Um, so it, it just has a huge amount of, of national forest lands. There's 18 national forests um, spread across California, plus the, uh, the Lake Tahoe Basin Management Unit, which is a terrible name for a beautiful spot, um, but it's um, some national forest that surrounds parts of Lake Tahoe uh, that the Forest Service manages. Um, and so, you know, we're talking Sierra Nevada, we're talking, um, you know, California desert, we're talking Chaparral, um, you know, the, the Angeles National Forest, which is not the one that I'm going to mention, but it's pretty cool. It's right outside of L.A. Um, I think like close to 17 million people live within an hour and a half of, uh, of the, the Angeles National Forest. So some of the more urban forests in the country, but also um, some of the, the more rugged ones. Um, and the one that I wanted to highlight from the Pacific South region is the Inyo National Forest, um, and it's in western Nevada and eastern California. Um, it uh, really provides the eastern access to the Sierras, actually, to the southern Sierras. And one of the highlights on the Inyo is Mount Whitney, which is the tallest uh, peak in the lower 48. Um, it does require permits and, and has some special regulations because it's very popular. But um, talk about a bucket list adventure, you know, climbing either all the way to the top or partway up Mount Whitney certainly rises to, to my bucket list anyway. Um, other, you know, really cool things on the Inyo, Mono Lake, um, which is a really interesting um, saline, saline lake uh, that has some cool geology. Um, there's part of part of that is access from this forest. Um, and one of my what I think is just absolutely incredible um, is this forest has a grove of bristlecone pine trees. Um, it's called Grove of the Ancients. And the bristlecone pine is the oldest single organism on the planet. And some of them are more than 5,000 years old, just an individual tree that has been growing for more than 5,000 years. I just find absolutely mind-blowing. And you can walk through this grove on the Inyo, which I uh, also think um, definitely deserves a spot on, on bucket lists. Oh, you just taught me something amazing. So uh, older than the redwood trees, no? I mean, yeah. red, redwood trees are a couple of thousand years old. Exactly. Um, wow. That is that is sort of absolutely breathtaking. And, and borders Yosemite. So again, just this yep. idea that our national parks and our national forests are so intertwined and, you know, to some degree it's helpful to think about them separately, but to some degree it's helpful to think about them as just our public lands in, in general. Uh, so region number six. Yeah. Um, now we're up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so region six is 
the Pacific Northwest region, um, and it covers uh, Oregon and Washington, um, and uh, it has 17 national forests, uh, one uh, national scenic area, the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area, which is a really cool, really unique uh, spot, um, one grassland, and two national volcanic monuments, so Newberry National Volcanic Monument and Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument are in the Pacific Northwest region, and both are managed by the Forest Service as part of the national National Forest System. Um, <clears throat> but the one I wanted to highlight here, and I've got to be honest, Jeremy, you know, coming up with with this list was uh, was was really fun, but it was also really challenging. You're you know, picking one out of seventeen, or I guess in this case, sort of twenty different um, you know units that I could have chose uh, was was challenging. So um, by no means should folks only go to these places. I was uh, worried about that you know, too. But, like you're not you're not saying, oh, this is the best. Ignore the rest. Exactly. But, yep. but you're help you're helping people get started. Uh, sure. I think, and that's really really important. Well, the one I wanted to highlight from the Pacific Northwest region is the Sayuslaw National Forest, um, and it's spelled S-I-U-S-L-A-W. Um, it's in Western Oregon, and it's actually on the coast, which is pretty cool. So, um, you know, folks are probably familiar with Oregon coast and how, you know, beautiful and, and breathtaking that is. So you've got a national forest that's on the coast that's pretty cool. Um, it's a little smaller than some of the others that we've talked about. It's only 630,000 630, acres, um, but it has coastal old growth rainforests, which are absolutely amazing. If you've never had a chance to check out one of those, um, talk about lush and green. It's it's just, it's breathtaking. Um, Mary's Peak is the highest peak on Oregon's coast, in, in Oregon's coast range. Um, that's in this forest. And then you know, the one thing I wanted to highlight I've, I've spoke quite a bit about wilderness areas and, and non-motorized recreation, but um, there's the Oregon Sand, Dude, Sand Dunes National Recreation Area um, on the Sayuslaw, and it's 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 a beach, basically, that's 47 miles long and one mile wide, and it offers hiking, camping, horseback riding, um, and uh, off-road vehicle riding. So if you ever wanted to, uh, you know, ride, ride an ORV on uh, a 47-mile-long sand dune, um, this is your this is your opportunity to do so. Um, it's pretty cool for folks that are into you know that kind of recreation. There's also the Sand Lake National Recreation Area, which is another spot um, for well known for OHV riding um, in that area. There's a couple campgrounds there too. So oh, this is um, huge. This is huge for RVing here for yeah. for toy haulers, right? We we did, exactly. we did stop by here, and I've oh, cool. never seen more toy haulers in my life. Um, I bet not. People both camping and campground and and sort of boondocking um so it was it was toy hauler heaven if that's something that you're into it was a really really cool spot yeah great oh that's cool that you've been there nice i, I have yet to, to go there but uh i've been to the oregon coast and it's just spectacular so i'm, I'm confident that <laughs> folks that that like orving would would probably really enjoy that one uh, but pacific northwest is my favorite part of the country so you threw me for a loop here with there being no region seven so we yes. are uh, we're not making a mistake here but there's no region seven or at least there's not anymore so let's head to region eight the southern region and this one this one looks huge yeah, it is. It's it's big. Um, and yeah, so as you said, the southern region, it's really probably should be called the southeast region. Um, but it covers um, Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Virginia, 
and uh, Puerto Rico. A lot of folks may not know that there is um, a national forest in Puerto Rico called El Yunque, um, which is really cool. It's the only tropical rainforest uh, in the national forest system, um, and uh, it's pretty cool. I, I did not highlight that one, but um, for folks looking to hop on a jet and uh, and fly somewhere and, and get some sunshine, um, El Yunque is a really cool spot uh, in Puerto Rico that they might want to check out. Um, I, I had no idea. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The one that I did want to highlight um, is uh, the Nantahala Pisgah National Forest. Um, and I won't spell that. It, it's actually pretty phonetic for folks who want to Google it, Nantahala Pisgah. Um, and it's in western North Carolina. Um, there's actually two separate forests, but they're they're sort of managed uh, together as the Nantahala Pisgah. Um Combined, there are more than one million acres. Um, so, it, you know, when we talk about public lands in the east, um, we often sort of think of them as smaller than their western counterparts. But a million acres of public land in western North Carolina in the Rockies is, or in the in the Appalachians, excuse me, um, that's a pretty big swath of land. Um, the Pisgah is to the north, and the Nantahala is to the south um, of of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So, again, we see that connection between um, national parks and national forests. So, to the north, and I've been to the all of these, right? And this okay. is one area where I'm in, intimately familiar with. And it's not like you drive over into Great Smoky National Park and it becomes more beautiful. I, I, right. this, this entire region is incredibly stunning. It just happens that part of it's designated as a national park. And then you have these two parts that are designated as, as national forests. Yep. And actually, Great Smoky Mountains is bordered by the Cherokee and I think one other national forest as well. Um, so, uh, you know, there, I think there's close to a dozen national parks around the country that are bordered in some way, shape or form by national forests. So we really do see that that connection for sure. And you're absolutely right. You know, <laughs> when you drive through the gate into into Great Smoky Mountains, it's not like the mountains get, you know, any prettier than than before you drove through the gate. So, um, you know, uh, uh, and Great Smoky Mountains, I think, is the most heavily visited visited national park in the country, something like 13 or 15 million people a year go there. So these two alternatives might be a lot less crowded and you've got more than a thousand miles of trails between the two that you, you know, may have mostly to yourself. Incredible mountain biking there. Folks there have been working really hard on building a really cool mountain biking network. Um, and there's some cool history here. Earlier in this in, in this podcast, I mentioned the Weeks Act of 1911. Well, the Pisgah National Forest was the first forest that became part of the federal estate after that act was passed, and it was actually donated to um, to the federal government by uh, Edith Vanderbilt, the widow of George Vanderbilt, um, who built um, a huge estate um, that actually borders the Pisgah. I think it borders the Pisgah. It's near it anyway, called uh, the Biltmore, um, which in in and of itself is a pretty neat thing to see. Um, and then uh, in addition, the Pisgah was where sort of forestry in the United States got its start as a profession. And there was a, a school that was founded there um, by Gifford Pinchot, um, who was the first chief of the, U the U.S. Forest Service. And that school is now uh, preserved as the cradle of forestry, um, where people can go and take tours and, and learn about the history of the national forest and the history of forestry as a, as a professional practice in the United States. Um, and then another first 
for this, um, the Nantahala Pisgah also contains the first designated wilderness uh, area in the eastern U.S. as well. So, you know, tons of recreation opportunities and tons of history there for folks that are interested in that sort of thing. And if you want to dive deeper, this is an excellent part of your book. Um, this is one of the earlier chapters, if I remember correctly, where you go into a lot of detail about the, the cradle of forestry, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, everyone's got to check out the book, Our National Forests. So we have two more regions here. So uh, re Region 9 intrigues me, uh, the Eastern Region. Get, mm -hmm. get us started here. Sure. Um, so Eastern Region covers basically the Northeast and the Great Lakes. Um, so you've got states, Maine, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, Minnesota, Indiana, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New York, New Hampshire, Vermont. Um, there's 17 national forests spread across this region and one national grassland, which uh, folks might uh, find interesting as well. Um, the one I wanted to highlight um, is um, the Superior National Forest in Minnesota. Um, and this might come as a surprise since we've talked about some pretty big western forests, but the Superior National Forest is more than 3 million acres, um, which is the largest of this list that we're talking about here today. Um, again, we talked about national parks, um, the Superior Borders uh, Voyagers National Park. Um, it's got parts of Lake Superior shoreline. Uh, it borders Canada. Um, and it's really sort of defined by water. Um, you know, Minnesota is known as the, the land of 10,000 lakes, and many of those are located uh, in, in the Superior National Forest. Um, there's 1,300 miles of cold water streams and 950 miles of warm water streams. There's thousands of lakes. Um, there's actually 695 square miles of the Superior National Forest is surface water, um, which is just, you know, an amazing amount of water recreation for folks that are interested in that kind of thing. Um, the fishing is pretty unbeatable. You know, you can catch everything from, you know, brook trout, cold water species to, to bass and, and muskie and things like that on the lakes and some warmer water species. There are boreal and hardwood forests um, and really the sort of crown jewel of of the Superior National Forest for a lot of folks is the one million acre Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness Area. And I think it's the most visited wilderness area in the national forest system. Um, and, you know, it, it's a it's a bucket list uh, spot for folks who enjoy canoeing and paddling um, and quiet recreation. You can't take motors in there. Um, but boy, in the in the summertime, you can't find, a, a, I, I don't think, a more peaceful place to, to go canoeing um, for a week or so. There's 37 campgrounds that are listed for RV camping alone spread across the forest. Um, there's mountain biking, there's ATV trails, and there's cool wildlife. You know, we tend to think of uh, the Western forests as containing a lot of the wildlife that folks might want to see, but the Superior, you're going to be able to either see or hear gray wolves. There's lots of black bear, um, you know, bald eagles. There's probably mountain lions living in there now. There's moose. Um, so you really get to see some of those pretty cool, charismatic megafauna that we like to call them um, that are uh, that are not just in Western forests, but also uh, in Eastern forests as well. I have never wanted to go to Minnesota more than I want to go to Minnesota right now. And that is not a knock on Minnesota because I really do want to go to Minnesota again. Uh, wow, that sounds absolutely amazing. So we have one more region left. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to come back with Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. But before we wrap up the show, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Thetford. Did you know that Thetford's Porta Potty is the original and best portable toilet? It is designed with a modern appearance, an ergonomic carrying handle, a standard lid latch, and it is durable and easy to use. There is also a removable seat and cover for easy cleaning. It also has an exclusive rotating pour-out spout, a piston pump flush, and its sealed valves keeps odors in the holding tank. Its easy-to-read level indicator tells when it's time to empty. A deodorant sample is included, and Thetford's Porta Potty comes with a three-year warranty. For easy transportation or storage, also make sure to check out the Porta Potty carrying bag. Thetford also recommends using liquid holding tank solution like Aquamax Summer Cypress Scent in your Porta Potty. Due to the size of the Porta Potty, the liquid will get the job done faster. To view their complete lineup of products, please visit thetford.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Greg M. Peters, the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. And we have been learning about all of the different National Forest Service regions. And then in each of those regions, Greg has been offering us a starting point, a recommendation. He's not necessarily saying it's the best one and to ignore all the other ones, but he's just giving us um, one of his top picks for us to get started building our own National Forest bucket list. So to wrap up the show... Uh, let's go on an epic trip to Alaska. What do we need to know about region 10? Yeah, well, you, you just nailed it. It is, it is Alaska. Um, and so it contains everything that Alaska contains. Um, there's only two national forests actually, um, in Alaska. Um, although there's a ton of public land in Alaska, most of it is managed by the park service or the fish and wildlife service. But those two national forests that are there are, um, are are absolutely massive uh, as is as fitting with Alaska. Um, I had mentioned just a second ago that um, the Superior National Forest was the largest uh, on the list, and I meant largest on the list so far because the Tongass National Forest, which is the one I want to talk about in Alaska, is 17 million acres. That's seven times as big as Yellowstone National Park. Um, so just try to wrap your head around 17 million acres. I mean, it is absolutely massive. Um, and it covers, um, it's the largest national forest in the country, um, in, in the system. And the other national forest in Alaska, the Chugach National Forest, um, is the second largest national forest at about 7 million acres. So um, just between the two of them, you got uh, 24 million acres of, of national forests in Alaska alone. Um, so just, uh, you know, a lifetime of, of adventure up there for sure. Um, so the Tongass, um, it, it's primarily located in Southeast Alaska. So you're, you're looking at a really unique and interesting set of geographies. You've got, um, islands, you've got, you know, glaciated mountains, you've got old growth, coastal rainforests, you've got old growth, cedar trees. Um, you know, when we talk about wildlife, you know, you've got everything from grizzly bears and black bears to orca whales and humpback whales swimming in the ocean. Uh, you've got bald eagles. You've got um, amazing salmon runs that come from the ocean up these rivers on the islands and in the and in the the mainland. Um, it's just it's just as wild as it gets, really. Um, there's everything from you know sea kayaking to hiking to whale watching tours. Um, there are several. Also, I think folks would really enjoy this. There are several um, 
designated and sort of managed bear watching areas. So folks have probably seen the photos of grizzly bears um, catching salmon as they swim up river and they jump in the air and the grizzly bears grab them out of the air with their mouths. You can see that in real life in a couple different spots on the Tongass with a ranger uh, watching over to make sure that, that the bears don't get too close to you and you don't get too close to the bears. And again, you know, we've hit on the, the bucket list thing, but uh, I can't imagine a cooler wildlife thing to see than, than that. Um, so is this, is this your ultimate uh, national forest service location? Is this at the top of your list for places you want to go? Yeah, someday for sure. I, I actually lived in Alaska for a few years and my wife is from Anchorage and, and still has some family up there. So we, we were just up there last summer. Um, I was up there in the winter as well a year or two ago. We've never made it down to Southeast. We've always just stayed up by Anchorage and then up in Interior. And it absolutely is high on my list of, of uh, places to go. It's just, I mean, I can't imagine a sort of a more wild and uh, and and immersive experience in 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 what makes, you know, what makes our natural world so amazing is it for me is, is that wildness. And I think the Tongass is about as, as prime a spot as you can find for, for seeking out that kind of thing. Alaska seems to encompass everything when it comes to the, the yeah. natural world. It seems to all be there waiting for us. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, there's also there there's some cultural attractions as well. You know, there's some really neat and interesting small towns, um, you know, that are sort of part of uh, of the national of the Tongass. You know, they're, they're separate, obviously, from the, the boundaries of the forest, but they're nestled within that 17 million acres. So you've got these really cool fishing and, and old timber towns that have now kind of transitioned to tourism. Um, you know, it's just a really neat spot. It, it's not easy to access. Um, you know, you, you can only drive to a couple spots um, and you have to drive across Canada to get to those spots. Um, you can take a marine ferry from uh, Washington up um, and and that'll deposit you in, in one of those uh, gateway towns. Uh, and from there, there's probably a small road network in a couple spots, but it's not an accessible location, which is partly why it's so wild and magnificent. And most people uh, that go see it probably do so on a, on a cruise ship. Um, but it's well worth uh, putting some time into, you know, researching how to how to get up there yourself and, and bring your RV and, and make a trip out of it. Um, it's just such a spectacular landscape. Greg, I cannot thank you enough for these two great episodes. And just on, on behalf of everybody listening, um, I, I, I've really wanted to learn more about our national forests myself. And I, I've really wanted to talk to our audience about camping responsibly on public lands, which you really uh, taught us a lot about in the last episode, just just two topics that have been on my mind a lot as interest in the great outdoors has exploded. And as a lot of people are starting to look past um, just some of those most iconic national parks and are looking for other places to camp and to recreate. And I just appreciate your knowledge on these topics so much. And I appreciate you giving us uh, all of this time on the RV Atlas. So tell everybody where we can buy our national forests. And also just really quickly, tell everybody about your other book as well, because I don't think we've mentioned that. Sure. Um, so, well, thank you, Jeremy. I've had a blast. It's been super fun. I, I love talking about national forests. I love um, sharing what I know about them with folks. And uh, I hope I hope your listeners found um, found some value in, in the conversation that we've had. I, I really enjoyed both of them and, and appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to these topics. Um, they're, they're near and dear to my heart. So thank you. Um, yeah. So the book, you can get it on uh, on Amazon. 
you can get it on Barnes and Noble, um, etc. I, I hope that some local booksellers are, are keeping it, and I would encourage folks to start there and uh, maybe even order it through their local bookseller if possible. Um, but certainly, it's available uh, online. There's an e uh, e version as well for folks that that might want to read it on a Kindle at a campground, for example. Although uh, I don't think you're going to get quite the the same feel from the ebook version. There's um, I sourced about 150 photographs for the book, um, some really beautiful kind of landscape photographs and some historical ones. And I don't think those would translate quite as well to the ebook version, but uh, nonetheless, there is one. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it, again, I think I mentioned this the last time, but, you know, it's a type of book you can pick up and read a chapter that, that delves into a particular topic, whether it's wildfire or recreation or uh, wildlife management on national forests, spend 15 minutes reading that chapter, put the book down, pick it up again in a week and uh, and read another chapter. They, they flow together, but you don't need to read it cover to cover. Um, it's not a novel. So. And beautiful color photographs as well. I mean, it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's, I, I don't necessarily want to call it a coffee table book, but it could it could kind of sit on your coffee table and just be that book that you grab and, like you just said, dive into uh, at your leisure. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, the, the designers did a really nice job uh, with, with putting it together. And, and it was intended to be kind of like a coffee table book, but not quite. So I think you hit it on the head there. Um and you gave me the opportunity, so I will mention for anyone who's in Montana um, that likes stand-up paddleboarding, I wrote a guidebook uh, for Falcon Guides, the the yellow-spined uh, guidebooks that you see um, at a lot of bookstores, uh, called Stand-Up Paddling Montana. And uh, it covers, I think, 75 or so different uh, waterways in Montana, everything from rivers and, and whitewater for folks that are into that to, to lakes. Um, and uh, yeah, if and, and I have a website, gregmpeters.com. It's got links to to both of the books for some more information. Um, it's got my email address. If folks are coming to Montana and they, they want a recommendation on where to go stand up paddling or any kind of paddling for that matter, um, feel free to, to drop me a line. I, I love talking about this stuff and I'm more than happy to, to answer questions from folks. All right. Well, I hope to meet you in real life. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Greg. And my pleasure. Same, Jeremy. Take care. A big thank you for listening to this episode of the RV Atlas, and a big thank you to our sponsors, to Neighbor, The Thetford Corporation, Camp Spot, Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts, RV Snaphead, and Go RVing. To find out more about the topics discussed in this show, head on over to the RVAtlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review over at iTunes. And we'll see you at the campground. <laughs>